0: Wake the Dead with Sean McCann. Welcome to another Wake the Dead. Today we will be continuing our Kubrick series. This is episode three of the Kubrick series. Today I would like to talk about Kubrick's process, filmmaking, how it's basically a photographer's process expanded out into film. And we're going to hear some quotes from a documentary. Uh, The documentary is titled, uh, The Last Movie, Kubrick, and Eyes Wide Shut. I'm going to give you some, I'm going to give you a timestamp. And we're going to hear from Sidney Pollack, Nicole Kidman, and Christian Kubrick. After that segment, I'm going to discuss a few of the non-submersible units of the film and uh, dig in further the research of those visual elements that are highlighted. I'd like to play a clip from a documentary titled, The Last Movie, Kubrick and Eyes Wide Shut. So, here's Sidney Pollack discussing Kubrick's method. Let's listen.
1: In the acting scenes, he worked in a way I understood very well, which is a kind of feel your way through it as you go. You have the boundaries of the scene in your head, as he did. But then he sort of gives you a little push off and sees where you go. And then he starts to correct it slowly, and then he records it on video with the tap. He, he wouldn't film it sometimes, he would record it on video, then he would show it to us. I'd sit here, Tom would sit here, he'd go through it, freeze the frame, and say, see that when you turned your head oh, like that, oh, he'll change this. or." At the end of a take, you'd say, Okay, Sydney, come here. I'd come and I'd sit down. But he wouldn't say anything to Tom, then he would take go through it through with me. Or, Okay, Tom, come here. Let's watch this.
0: That was Sydney there talking about how Kubrick allows for synchronicities. Uh, you'll set it when a photographer will set up the scene, set the lighting, and then Who knows what's going to happen? And then as you look at the contact sheet later, that's when it pops up at you. We're going to hear Nicole Kidman discuss that a little further. Stanley always was waiting for something to happen. He wasn't as interested in naturalistic acting as he was in something that for whatever reason surprised him or um, piqued his interest that's when he would go ah, oh, okay now we're on to something ah okay now we're on to something so that is how I work that's the best way to work you need to burn off film like it takes an entire roll of film to get one good shot Here, we'll listen to Sidney Pollock talk about that.
1: He always would say, when we would talk about it, isn't it silly? You know, the, the cheapest part of all this is do another take. Do another take. You've spent millions of dollars preparing, and building sets, hiring people, doing costumes, and months and months writing a script, years sometimes. And then you get there and you quit on take five, or take six. Take seven isn't that silly you don't know what's gonna happen if you try three
0: or four or five more he would say okay you've done a few takes now you can just do what you want to do and and i'd heard all these stories about him being incredibly controlling and not wanting this and not wanting that and at certain times he was very controlling at other times he was pleased just and particularly with the monologues is when he allowed me just to really just get lost in alice and i think that's what happened i mean over the course of the year and a half i just you know became that woman so this is allowing the subconscious of the actors to bubble out when they go again and again and keep doing and keep doing and then they he allows them to say whatever words they choose that is when you get the synchronistic moments Like when in The Shining, when Jack Nicholson's talking to Lloyd at the bar, and he says, the white man's burden. Just that one little phrase has so much information. It's uh, such a big idea, boiled down to this little nugget of a phrase. And that might have fallen out of Jack Nicholson's mouth by accident and Kubrick was able to capture that. That is why he burns so much film. That's why the actors are stuck there for years and years over and over again. If you find a mistake or you don't get the perfect shot, it's almost impossible to reshoot and have it be just perfect. You gotta get the lighting right, you gotta get all the actors the same you gotta get everything the same. There are people that that film productions will hire just just to maintain continuity between shots. It's a it's a big job. And the easiest way to get over that problem is to shoot it all all at once. Just burn-off film. Who cares? Film is the cheapest part, as Sidney Pollack was saying. They spend millions of dollars on sets and makeup artists and all of this. And the film is one of the cheapest elements. Why not spend the time to allow for synchronicity to bubble those moments out? Here we'll listen to We're going to let it continue. This is Christiane Kubrick talking about what, what Tom and Nicole had to go through.
1: When he had this important scene with them, he had them in the set and he watched outside on a monitor and let them go through it over and over. And it was very raw stuff. It was very, um, that's why I said they took more than their clothes off. They absolutely took their skin off women know that they have that power uh, if they're loved only then do they have it uh, to tease
0: Hmm. so there you have it that is Kubrick is allowing he sets the parameters and then he pushes them off into the into the uh, the waters of synchronicity, and then he allows the film to capture it all. So after you burn all that film, then you develop it, and you bring it into the into the enlarger, and you print the contact sheet and then with your magnifying loop you review each frame and that is when the magic appears you don't even know what you shot until you get it developed i mean i've had i've got some shots some of the most amazing work i've done is just uh... incense smoke in window light with uh... you know uh, light-sensitive film so that I can use fast shutter and uh, I would burn an entire roll of film on one frame. I would have it set up properly. I would light light the incense and then I would allow for synchronicity to do what it will. I would disturb the air and I would just capture what is happening. I knew it was in focus, I knew the lighting was perfect, and I just let the shutter click. And I didn't know what I had until I brought it to the developing. So let's hear about how Kubrick reviews his shots. Here's Steven Spielberg discussing Kubrick's method of reviewing all the different takes of the film Full Metal
1: Jacket. On Full Metal Jacket, you know he had every take on a different television screen, with a different computer tower, a different, different, uh, different tape unit, a different three-quarter inch feed. And he would compare Take-1 to Take-31 with all these monitors and all these uh, three-quarter inch tape machines. And during Full Metal Jacket when we talked, he would just rave about how easy it is to compare performance to compare Lee Ermey's performance on take five and then take 25. Because he had the monitors right next to each other.
0: Total. That is the most perfect way of reviewing his contacts. He's got all of the raw on all these different screens and he can play them, compare them, just like a contact sheet. You got all the frames lined up right next to each other. And you can see the array of the full, you know, the full array of, of shots from that roll all there on that one contact sheet so that you can choose the best that bubbles out. That's what Kubrick is doing here. He has video that he can play back on all these different monitors all in the same place at the same time so his mind can comprehend, can compare exactly, the lighting, the setting, the audio, everything, all compared in the moment to each other. Gadget freak,
1: I think he was. I kind of supplied him with a lot of toys. Had to be the latest, the newest. Sort of the toys of our trade were all over Stanley's kitchen and his workspace. The most wonderful, there's a better one coming out. Flat tins of film. Like great big metal
0: pills. Turtle sucker for that. <laughs> That's just a little added bonus. So, Kubrick used all the tools that he could, and he was he was allowing for synchronicities, and his intelligence was able to to uh, edit out what didn't fit so that he could sew together a greater narrative. Here's another clip from that same film. Brian Aldiss, writer of the short story Super Toys Last All Summer Long. This is the story that AI was based on. Let's listen to what he says about Kubrick's method of creating the story he had a contempt for narrative I was kind of hooked on narrative but he said to me forget it all you need for a movie is six or eight non submersible units this this was his phrase non submersible units and once you've heard this you see how 2001 is constructed of non submersible units And I thought that was very, very impressive. So I also scrapped narrative. And we had got, I believe, three non-submersible units. But at this point,
1: enter Pinocchio.
0: Oh, God, Pinocchio and the Blue Fairy. I've wanted Stanley to create a great modern myth. The photographer... Has a contempt for narrative. That's just, that just makes me elated to hear. I love that. Because it doesn't take narrative to make a movie. A movie is like a dream. It's told in images. It's a right brain action. Narrative is left brain. He says, get rid of that. He doesn't want any of that. You need six or eight non submersible units. That's how to build a film. Those non submersible units stick in your mind. They become their own. They, they become their own element in your mind. And he, he's forming these archetypal images that will burn in. To your memory. That will be non-submersible. <laughs> that won't go away. They will. They will stay there on the forefront. So, if you think, okay, this is. So if that's how he makes a movie, and Brian Aldiss says it, oh, that explains two thousand one. That I mean, think of if you think about it, that's how all of his films are built he gives us these certain scenes which burn in like uh, in full metal jacket, the bathroom scene with, you know, with Hartman getting shot by uh, you know, Leonard and like that just burns in and the stare that Leonard gives and the coldness of the blue light. I mean, the, the, frame within a frame around joker's head of the light you know they're in the box his head is in the box you know like it's it's the effects of mind control it took i mean it took him like two weeks to light that goddamn shot they took so much time just to light it because of what they're building because he's building a non-submersible unit that's gonna stay in your mind and he wants it to be perfect so that all these elements are, are there and accessible to your memory for further reference. These non-submersible units have visual elements which are used cross-pollinated between the films. So Lolita's non submersible unit in the very beginning of Quilty getting shot by Humbert, that is memorable. The ornate opulence of the place, the way that it's the lighting is perfect, everything is sumptuous. It's I mean, you you can, you can get lost in every frame each frame is so memorably perfect and the dialogue burns in along with this, with the image. And then later, and we get, but the frames are there in your mind. You remember what it is about that movie, about that scene stays in your mind like you remember a dream. Like, you don't remember the narrative of a dream. You remember the segments, the pieces, the the felt, the expressions of the emotions. That's what you remember. That's what's non-submersible. And in that moment of the dream, you see that you are aware of the setting and the lighting, and that is what, that felt experience is what gets remembered. It's all of it. So it like the narrative is just a piece and the narrative isn't what carries the emotion. It's the light, it's the feelings. So if you remember what sub like think about kubrick's films and then think about these non-submersible units and what elements do they have <laughs> excuse my son liam he's, he's having breakfast in the other room i'm sure you can hear him making noise it's cute as hell anyway um these non-submersible units of each film interrelate with each other with their visual elements like i mentioned earlier uh, i'm not sure which episode it all kind of blends together but i was talking about how clockwork orange uses a billiard table in one of their non-submersible units and the billiard table has speakers on it and this image of the guy's face smiling with justice as speakers are being are booming on this billiard table. And that image relates to Ziegler and Ziegler telling truth. He's speaking truth in the billiard room. I mean, just like the element of Quilty getting shot behind the portrait relates to Ziggler's, the scene with Ziggler in the billiard room because of the portraits on the wall. So these non submersible units can help to inform you on what's being expressed in the other films. It's like all of his films can reference each other on this narrative that he's, that he's laying out throughout his career. He's not just saying something in one movie. Each movie is non submersible. And those movies can be recalled for further reference and eyes wide shut is like it relates to two or three i mean it relates to the shining it relates to lolita it like it's telling the same story as those films from a different angle it has the same uh, you know it's, it's a lament of a nightingale, <laughs> you know? It, it... So, yeah, basically, that is how he constructs his, his narrative. His narrative is built with images. And those images are what contain the information. It's not the narrative. It's the image. The the information is in the frame. I mean, it can also be in the narrative if it's something that's super memorable. Like uh, when Halloran's talking to Danny in the kitchen and uh, he says, there ain't nothing in room 237. Like that burns in, you know? Or like when Jack is like, at the bar and he says to and he, and he says to the um, Lloyd at the bar, he says, um, I give my goddamn soul for just a glass of beer, you know, like those kind of things, like he's good with the with the good with the audio too, but I'm saying that the image is what burns in, and that is what you remember in your mind. That's how it bubbles out. Switching gears now, I'd like to talk about some of those memorable elements. The first one that I'd like to get into is morning breakfast with Alice and Helena. In the morning, Helena is eating cereal and her mother, Alice is reading the paper it's the next morning after Ziegler's party it's at 21 minutes and four seconds this scene is a replica well not a replica but it is um it reminds us of the shining the scene where wendy and danny are having their morning routine and wendy is reading the paper and danny is having his breakfast watching cartoons that's the same image here except it's helena not danny but what is helena watching she's watching Bugs Bunny, which is another reference to Doc. Danny's nickname is Doc. And Halloran even says to him, yeah, what's up, Doc? Just like Bugs Bunny. So, okay, this is, this is, this entire scene reminds us of that scene in The Shining. It's relating to us how this child and the child in The Shining are living a similar life. And we know about The Shining. It is, Danny is an abuse victim. Danny's abuse breaks his psyche into an alter personality. And Danny is more psychologic, um, Danny is more uh, psychically connected. His shining is more enhanced now that he's endured this physical abuse. And Wendy tells the, the doctor some story about how Danny got his papers all over the floor and Jack grabs him by the arm and pulls him up. So they have this story that they tell people. Is that the truth? We are left to to wonder. So we understand that Danny is a multiple personality. Like he, his psyche is split from trauma. So that is another form. It's an, it's another way of looking at this phenomenon of trauma-based mind control. So this i wide eyes wide shut is an extension of that same underlying thread that's teaching us about the reality of the human mind and the human experience and what happens to humans under trauma. So getting back to this scene in Eyes Wide Shut, we have uh, we have a table in the foreground with the breakfast items. Uh, Helena has roses, red roses on her bathrobe. And on the TV, Bugs Bunny is reading, he's talking about, he's reading a Christmas story out of a green book. And if you look on the table, in the foreground, such that the reflection of Helena's robe is reflecting on the shiny surface of the cover of the book. The book is upside down, but you can still read the title on the spine. It being upside down lets us see the full greenness of this book. This book is green just like the green book that Bugs Bunny is reading from. And what is the name of the book? What is written on the spine of this book? How the Grinch Stole Christmas. That right there tells you what you need to know about the last scene of this movie. Helena is stolen on Christmas. The Grinch is someone who's a psychopath and has no empathy. That's who the Dark Occult is. The Grinch is a metaphor for psychopath. And these psychopaths steal Helena. At Christmas so let's skip ahead to the toy store scene this is where most of the action happens <laughs> starting at 2 hours 29 minutes 4 seconds we see alice and bill and helena turning a corner into this scene a clerk is shooting bubbles over alice's head and the wall is painted red there's stars on the wall that the bubbles that this clerk is shooting the stars are like an extension of those bubbles and seeing this red is is like a subconscious uh connection to the red carpet and the red table and the uh, well anyway it's a it's a connection it's a visual element that he's reusing right So this clerk is shooting the bubbles over Alice's head and they turn the corner and at the feet of where this clerk is shooting there's stacks of a board game with a Zodiac Zodiac circle on it titled the magic circle, magic circle. It's not really a board game. It's like a magic set for kids to do magic tricks. Right. And it says on the box box deluxe box of tricks. And then at 22922 22, there's a thug that appears and Bill doesn't notice. Alice looks to see if Bill does notice. Alice is handling Bill. It's very obvious. And then at 29 seconds, Alice looks at an old, or Helena looks at an old fashioned baby carriage. And 45 seconds, Helena expresses her desire for a big teddy bear. <laughs> and they discuss, you know, uh, Alice says, you'll have to wait and see. So that teddy bear is a reference to pedophilia it was also used in the shining behind danny's head after he had his incident with passing out in the bathroom and when the uh, psychologist is speaking to danny there's a close-up of danny's face and his pillow is a teddy bear highly charged symbolism there okay so she picks up this big stuffed teddy bear and then 15 seconds after that at two hours 30 minutes and zero seconds behind to the right on the back wall is a toy set named connects k-n-e-x that's on the right and the stuffed animals are on the left and above alice's head at this moment is a on the back wall is a yellow octagon inside of this yellow octagon is a checkered obelisk And the spinning wheel windmills on the connects display, draw your attention to this back wall. And Kubrick is telling you to make a mental connection. So if you're familiar with Mark Passio, he's done, he's spoken about the octagon and what that symbolizes for Satanism the religion of Satanism the philosophy of Satanism uses the symbol of an octagon to represent mind control slavery It's a big concept, but basically, the octagon is a two-dimensional shadow of a four-dimensional shape called a tesseract. It's also called the hypercube. It is a cube that is extruded into four dimensions. This has big significance to the philosophy of Satanism. Because the, the Tesseract is a inner square, inner box, I guess, cube, held within an outer cube this inner cube is constantly extruding out but it finds itself trapped every time the inner cube is perpetually trapped within the outer cube and it's held down on in four corners by trapezoids trapezoid is a very important shape for satanists as well And this is because it relates to the Tesseract. But in general, the octagon in occult orders is recognized as a two-dimensional representation of the Tesseract. Now, fourth dimension symbolizes the next level of being where we are in this three-dimension realm fourth dimension would be the next level but it also represents a prison within an outer realm of existence being the outer cube the inner cube is a prison cell This prison cell is how Satanists represent the mind-controlled victim. Their mind is in a prison cell controlled by the rulers that created this cell to trap the mind satanists see themselves as those rulers and the sheep as the slaves kept in the inner cell kept within the confines of mind-controlled slavery so a trauma-based mind-control victim like helena is a uh, perfect example of a mind controlled slave. So Kubrick showing this yellow octagon on red directly almost like touching Helena's head, the way that the camera is framed. And within this obelisk, like in front of it i guess the little the toy itself is a it's it's a checkered black and white check pattern on a, either a lighthouse or an obelisk it's basically a phallus painted up with checkers black and white like the masonic like the the floor of the house of freemasonry And the octagon that surrounds it is a toy. Um, what do you call it? Um, merry-go-round. Not a merry-go-round. It's a, the big windmill. Like, oh, fuck. Well, anyway, you find it at the, at the carnival. It's a uh, the big wheel that you sit in a little pod and you go around the big wheel and it brings you up high and you get to kiss your date while you're up at the top. I forget what that's called. Anyway, that is basically, it's a toy version of that. So the the obelisk is the supporting structure that holds the hub of this wheel. And the wheel itself is an octagon and the obelisk is the I mean, it is the checkered phallus that, I mean, it, and the obelisk is the symbol of that the dark occult use. Like that is their main symbol. It represents the generative principle. It represents the generation of creation, the power of God. So that, with its being painted up like a checkerboard, obviously gives it a Masonic bent, gives it a Masonic relation. So this symbol behind her is so loaded with information, and it's just there on the wall behind her. And it's, it's in full view as the thug is on the screen. At two hours, 30 minutes, and 15 seconds, the octagon is directly behind her head and the thug is in full view on the right of the screen. He's like uh, wearing a dark overcoat, maybe in his mid-thirties, dark hair. Looks like a typical italian mobster guy and he's not there with kids he's there scoping out bill and helena he passes by the first time and then he comes back again after helena looks at the toys the stuffed animals he comes back again he puts his hand on a little stuffed teddy bear and then he moves off the screen towards the aisle where the two gentlemen are i spoke about the two gentlemen in the previous episode they're at the end of the aisle so right after we see this thug and the octagon at two hours 30 minutes and 20 seconds helena holds up a ballerina doll, dolly, like a ballerina doll with a nutcracker. It's, it's the nutcracker edition of Barbie. And this reminds us to the beginning of the film where Helena is interested in the nutcracker. And then behind... Behind her, on our right of the screen, is a Barbie as Marilyn Monroe in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. She's in the red dress, The Scarlet Woman. If you know about SRA victims, Blondes are cherished for their uh, psychic abilities and their beauty, I guess. But they're a more they are believed to be a more evolved level of human. Blonde women are used in their rituals uh, for their psychic abilities. So the gentleman that the gentleman that own diamond mines prefer blondes. <laughs> so let's let's talk about this. Uh, gentlemen prefer blondes. It's a film from 1953, starring Marilyn Monroe. And. Uh, The basic premise is that Marilyn is only interested in money and wealth. That is her own the only the only drawing factor from of her to males is money. And her best friend doesn't care about money and likes attractive young physically fit men and throughout the whole film uh Marilyn she acts stupid to win rich men and she says that her friend is dumb for finding men that have no money and in the, she meets this like in, they're on a they're on a trip on a boat to europe from america and there's another person on the boat who looks like a goddamn walrus he's hideous physically but he owns diamond mines in south africa So basically, he works with, with the Rhodes, Cecil Rhodes' crew. If you own diamond mines in South Africa, you're part of the British elite establishment that is ruling the world, basically. So she meets this man, and the guy steals a diamond tiara from his wife and gives it to her so that she will like him sexually he's just enamored with her and she manipulates him with her stupid act and her uh devious nature to to get what she wants with her female wiles (laughs) and so you know it's a it's a big problem the wife who owns the the tiara gets mad and the guy doesn't is not honest and he's he's a worm who who runs away from responsibility and and she's stuck with this stolen thing and she has to go to court and there's this whole to do so that That's the premise, right? So that is reminding you of that movie just by flashing the Barbie doll of Marilyn Monroe. So what is the most memorable scene of this movie? Marilyn sings a song titled Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. At 59 minutes, the opening curtains for this musical number. 59 minutes of the movie, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. And at 59, right when the curtain opens, there is a chandelier and a couch-type furniture. And in the furniture is women enslaved in bondage they're in black and bound to the furniture so that they are furniture and that if you remember is a term used by quilty quilty in lolita tells humbert that you can use people as furniture so all of the other women the ballroom dancing women have a black veil tied around their face And the women in the chandelier are bound at the wrist, shoulders, waist, and leg. And they're smiling fake smiles. There's even one on the left which looks to be crying. And the inner women, there's women on the inner parts of the chandelier, which are laying on their backs and their legs are bound open in a spread eagle position. So all of the female dancers have a black veil tightly wrapped around their heads. And Marilyn pr- proclaimed, Marilyn is the only one with her face exposed. And all the men want her. All these men are dangling these black, what looks to be a leather bondage strap with diamonds on it. And they're all trying to win her affections by displaying their diamonds to her. And she plays and sings and dances between these men. At 59 minutes and 48 seconds, 12 women bound in six pedestals, holding up lamps in black. At their waists, each one of them have a bronze ram's head. They're holding up chandeliers with black candles. And the background, again, is blood red. At one minute, or one hour and 30 seconds, Marilyn points directly at the ram's head, and a pale, lifeless woman stares blankly. At one minute, one, or one hour, one minute, and eight seconds, Marilyn jumps up on the pedestal with bound slave women, not even noticing they're there, singing away about how diamonds are a girl's best friend. So let's go back to that Barbie doll. It's the scarlet woman in a red dress reminiscent of Babylon. She's blonde and Marilyn Monroe is commonly understood as the first Publicly viewed trauma-based mind control victim That was used in Hollywood Or if not the first at least the most famous So what about the nature of Barbie Barbie itself reminds us of disassociative identity disorder. Barbie is Barbie the whole time, but she has infinite identities. There's Malibu Barbie. There's gentlemen prefer blondes Barbie. There's ballerina Barbie this sh- this gives us an idea this is a subconscious relation to the subject of trauma based mind control barbie herself is a trauma based mind control victim i mean she's a doll sure but it's a it's a It's a representation of a beautiful woman with ridiculous proportions that can't even, that can never be had by any woman. (laughs) Like her, her waist is like seven inches around. Anyway, she is something for these little girls to look up to. And she has multiple personalities. And if you look back at that scene... Where Helen is holding up the doll, the ballerina doll. If you look under the gentleman prefer blondes Barbie, there is a box. There is another Barbie. It's a the Barbie is contained within a golden box. And you can see her face looking out through a window cut through. There's like a viewing window cut in this golden box. The window is an, is an upside down star. It's an inverted pentagram that she looks out from in her golden box. <laughs> I mean can't get much loaded than that like that is such heavy symbolism all in one scene like kubrick is able to load all of these elements into this few frames of photograph it's amazing So let's talk a little bit more about Barbie, shall we? Since Kubrick introduced this element, this archetypal thing from our popular culture, let's look into what Barbie is. So Barbie was inspired by a sexy gag doll gift. It's a, it was marketing, it was a marketing toy for a German newspaper named Bild Zeitung. And the doll was named Bild Lily. <laughs> I mean, like the green language, Lilith. And we know about Lilith from the Bible, right? And then build, like their god, Bill. You know, Mark Passio's work teaches us about Bill, Baal, Bildeberg, dollar bills, you know, the name of their god. So that right there, we're getting into some heavy shit. So. Barbie was inspired by this doll. This doll was intended for adults and it was to advertise this newspaper. And the Satanists in America got this great idea. Let's create a doll with voluptuous, curvaceous sexiness and give it to little kids to play with. So Mattel is the company that created Barbie. And Barbie they they hired this is like a construction of this is a a corporate construction. Barbie isn't some uh, just inspired work by one person. It was constructed with committees. They hired, Satanists hired the, uh, let's see what his name is. They hired, uh, well, I don't know. Basically, it, it was the, they hired the best, uh, the most famous uh, Hollywood makeup artist to design the face of the Barbie doll. And they hired a uh, Ernest Dichter who is a marketeer with a Freudian background and the belief that sex sells. Uh, He was basically Bernays on steroids. He used techniques of psychology, including depth interviews, projective techniques and observational research. He was the father of motivational research he coined the term focus group. Ernest Dichter ran, in quotes, living laboratories, where in his mansion, there were psychologists watching intently every move of children as they watched television. Dichter promised his clients like Mattel. He promised them in quotes, mobilization and manipulation of human needs as they exist in the consumer. I mean, talk about Bernays on steroids. Dichter ultimately offered consumers moral permission to embrace sex and consumption. He forged a philosophy of corporate hedonism. <laughs> I mean, Satan has loved this guy. So in 1959, Barbie was debuted at the New York Toy Fair. She was shown with 22 outfits, not 23, 22. That makes sense for those who have ears to hear. Slave, I mean, she's she's a slave, basically. She doesn't achieve 23. She's stuck in the slave. She can't skidoo, if you know what I mean. So these outfits included a ballerina with tutu and a tennis outfit. With racket, both of those things are elements used in Eyes Wide Shut. The tennis rackets are in the opening shot with Alice undressing, and we see two tennis rackets on the floor by the under the light. And then when you notice that alice alice it's so basically barbie is a doll that they created so that they could sell the outfits to the kids so the marketing was to sell more pieces of clothing and supposedly the voluptuous figure was intended to fill out the clothes properly the clothes made her look normal right Because, like, when you take clothes off, it's like their proportions are impossible for a human. (laughs) And uh, so, anyway, the uh, Barbie, the Barbie doll, what it is, being this uh, toy, for the, the, the uh, toy, which changes its clothes and has tennis rackets. <laughs> I mean, that's what Kubrick is showing us in that opening scene. He's showing us Alice is a Barbie doll. And a, the Barbie doll is a dissociative identity victim I guess like have her so if you understand like what the Barbie is it's this voluptuous blonde beautiful bombshell that you can change her outfits and you can play with her right something it's she's the uh, she's the she's the toy for the adult man As opposed to the, I mean, so anyway, uh, Alice is depicted as a Barbie in that opening scene. So that tent, the tennis rackets relate, and the ballerina with tutu relates to the, to Helena, because she's asking to watch Nutcracker. She's wearing a tutu and at the end she's holding up the barbie the ballerina barbie of the nutcracker edition so basically both alice and helena are seeking to be like barbie so at this new york toy fair none of the major buyers wanted the toy. The toy fair is, is intended to display the toys for buyers like Sears Roebuck and big store, big stores to order to sell in their stores. It's like a, it's a, you know, a convention, it's a sales event. None of them wanted the toy they did not see the appeal because i mean probably because they weren't pedophiles (laughs) but that's beside the point so how is it that barbie became such a phenomenon well barbie is a success because Advertising on the Mickey Mouse Club. (sighs) Boom, right? Now you're thinking about Full Metal Jacket. And you feel the, the ending scene. All the soldiers are singing the Mickey Mouse Club song. Disney is the Mickey Mouse Club. Disney is programming the children. Disney works with the Nazis. Disney helps train little kids to grow up to be soldiers that kill. It's a big club and you ain't in it. I'd like to describe how dolls are used in trauma-based mind control programming. We're going to read from page 47 of Bryce Taylor's Thanks for the Memories. My doll collection. This is from her book. This is her speaking. I had a doll cabinet that my father had specifically made for me, specially made for me. It was filled with dolls from all over the world that were given to me to love. My father used my dolls to program different personalities within me as he abused me night after night. Often, when my father tortured me, he would hand a different doll for me to hold in order to create different parts of me with different identities that in my young mind, I could relate to the doll I was holding. He told me the doll in my hand was part of me, but separate. And then he would call it by name. There was a little doll with the red hair and freckles, the baby doll, Cindy, the bride doll, Rebecca, Sally, Thumbelina, Barbie, and Madame Alexander, to name a few. There were dolls everywhere around me, especially in that doll case that my father had made for me with the sliding glass window front so the dolls could be seen. Each doll was displayed, which my father said meant they couldn't play until he said it was time for them to come out of the case. At night when he woke me for abuse he took out out the doll whose personality was to be the front or presenting personality of my inner system of created personalities. As he pulled the doll out of the doll case he'd say, she's no longer on display. She can come out and play now. And at that tender age, I would switch into the personality my father called forth. Then he would say, you Susie will step aside as Doll fully enters your body. When I snap my fingers three times, Doll will enter the body and Susie will step aside like this now. And he would snap his fingers three times and I would follow my father's command totally and completely. This is how it's done. And by selling it to the market, the wider market, it's introducing this practice to the wider set of humanity. It's giving the sheep this, you know. Um, So, basically, he would use the doll to create separate personalities within her. And that's what Barbie is. Barbie is a tool which gives pedophile programmers many choices to choose from. There's ballerina Barbie, and there's tennis player Barbie. And each one can have a different name and can be put on display in the case and used in the same manner that Bryce Taylor's father used on her when she was a baby. Logically, what is the purpose of giving a a child, which shouldn't even understand what sex is or is about, why give that child a little toy that looks like a voluptuous blonde woman ready for sex? If you think about it, this is, this is intended to arouse pedophiles when some helpless little victim child comes up to a pedophile and he, and she holds up a little dolly that looks like a Playboy magazine. What is this pedophile going to think? It's, it causes, or it's intended to arouse adults So why are adults giving it to children? It's like adorning a child with sexual arousal. That's what it does. And Barbie is a dissociative identity victim who's stupid and has no, nothing in her mind. All she is, is sex. And wanting to please men with blonde hair and sexy body. And it programs the little girls to want to be like that. At the same time, it entices pedophiles to rape children. I mean, when when you think about it, The nuts and bolts of it. What is it? I'd like to wrap it up there for today. Uh. If you like my work, and you'd like to support me, please consider visiting Store Frontier forward slash Octoritas Illusio spelled just like it sounds. That is my garment store, I guess. I sell t-shirts with my own designs, uh, freedom, anarchy-based designs. And uh, they're there for you to, to order. They're a physical item that you can keep and love. The sweatshirts are so soft and it's uh, it's really, uh, I'm really happy with the results of this company. And uh, I'd like to share these images with you. And when you buy a shirt, it puts a couple dollars in my pocket so that I can continue doing what I'm doing. And every little bit helps to relieve the pressure of this slavery system that we live under. You know at least in my life it relieves my pressure personally and I appreciate it immensely so please visit that site store frontier forward slash octoritas illusio thanks again for listening and I hope to have you join me again on the next episode of Wake the Dead.